0: Proud dad moment. My son just finished the uh, Oklahoma City Marathon. I may or may not have been <clears throat> tracking him uh, during the prayer, but uh, <clears throat> so that's not me. I I run from the couch to the fridge, but he just finished a marathon. So proud of him. So. Well, today we are having uh, six people baptized. This morning, two in each service. And in preparation for the baptism, I want us to consider an account of a baptism in the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts, and then we'll look at two other scriptures as well. But the book of Acts, as you may be aware, describes how the message about Jesus uh, spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And so, uh, the early church was comprised of Jewish believers in Jesus who grew up uh, following the law. And as it progressed, it became largely Gentile believers who uh, did not understand or follow the law. And so part of the subplot of the book of Acts is how the original church, the Jewish believers, came to a place where they fully accepted the Gentile believers in Christ. And that was quite a a switch in in their mindset because they basically believed that to be a good Christian, you first have to become a good Jew. You first have to follow the law. And that's your entrance into the body of Christ. And so we're going to look at Acts 10. It was a really, it was a, a, a passage, an instru- a, a, a incident that was really instrumental in changing the minds of Jewish Christians. But first, let me say that this issue is still very relevant for us today. It's very relevant for us here in this church. One of the most natural things in the world is for the dominant culture in the church to basically give off the vibe that we are superior. And if you don't look like us, if you don't, if you're not like us, and all these demographics, it could be uh, financially, it could be ec- uh, economically, it could be uh, your race, it could be your educational, you know, education uh, status, you know, all these things. It's just easy to give off this vibe, and it's not intentional most of the time, but it happens. Today's passage is uh, a serious statement about how everybody who comes to Christ is on level ground before the, clo- the cross. There, there's no ranking in the body of Christ. And so in Acts 10, we read about Cornelius. He was a centurion in the Roman army. He lived in, in Caesarea. Uh, he was a Gentile, but he feared the God of Israel. He was very generous to the Jewish people. And one afternoon, uh, an angel of God appeared to Cornelius in a dream that happened uh, numerous times in the New Testament. So an angel appeared to Cornelius in a dream and he said Cornelius send for a man named Peter. He's in the town of Joppa. So he dispatched three people to go get get Peter. Meanwhile, God appeared to Peter in this, he had this vision, and there was this. That's where the sheet came down out of heaven, and it was filled with all these unclean animals. And God said, "Kill and eat." And Peter said, "No, I've never eaten anything unclean." It happened two more times, and Peter was convinced. And so he came to this understanding that the the Jewish dietary laws are obsolete. What you eat has no bearing on your purity before God. It, it doesn't. It's it's irrelevant spiritually. Uh, after the cross. And so because of that, uh, when these three men came to Peter, he agreed to go with them. He actually agreed to go into Cornelius's house, which again was scandalous because Jews did not go into a Gentile house and they certainly didn't eat with Gentiles. But Peter went with them. And when he heard that Cornelius had been visited by an angel of God, he fully understood that, quote, God is not one to show partiality that anyone from any nation who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so Peter understood this, and at this point it says Peter preached the gospel to them. He told them about the miracles and the teachings of Jesus, told them about the, the crucifixion of Jesus as payment for our sin, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter concluded by telling them that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. And beginning in Acts 10, 44, we read this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter, in other words, the other Jews who came, Jewish believers who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Does that remind you of anything? It reminds you of the day of Pentecost. And so just like on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they spoke with other tongues, which means they spoke languages that they had not learned. And in that, this case, there's, there was a gift of tongues, but this in this case, this was this confirmation that these Gentiles, God had forgiven them of their sin, and he now lived within them through the Holy Spirit. And so even though it's not explicitly stated here, we can safely assume that they believed the gospel. Because they believed the gospel, they were given the Holy Spirit, and the manifestation in this account was that they spoke in other tongues. Continuing in verse 46, then Peter answered, and notice the logic behind verse 37, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, Just as we did, can he? He's expecting some pushback, right? He's expecting that some would say, yeah, we see this manifestation, but they can't be baptized like us. Well, Peter's logic is, if God has given them the Holy Spirit when they believed, just as he gave us, Jewish Christians, the Holy Spirit when we believed, How can we deny them the water? It's the same word used for uh, do not forbid the children to come to me, what, what Chris mentioned earlier. He said, how can we refuse the waters of baptism if God hasn't treated them any differently? How can we treat them any differently? And Peter's making this basic point that everyone who has received the Holy Spirit, everyone who's believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, has a right to be baptized. And so being baptized is not some privilege that's reserved for a certain race or a certain class of Christians. It's not reserved for people who've attained a certain level of maturity. No, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've received the Holy Spirit, then you have a right to be baptized. Uh, J.I. Packer, years ago, he made the, made the comment. He said, just as if you join the army, you have a right to have the patch on your shoulder, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a right to be baptized. And so Peter understood that. And so in verse 48, we read, and Peter ordered them to be baptized. <laughs> he was pretty, uh, pretty aggressive here. But he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's short for what we find in the Great Commission, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they, the Christians in Caesarea, asked him, Peter, to stay on, stay on a few days. And so baptism was not only a declaration by Cornelius and the others who believed that we are followers of Christ and it's our intention to follow him for a lifetime. It was that, but it was also implicitly a declaration that there was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. It was a declaration that the wall of separation had been broken down we all stand level before the cross. The other two scriptures we're going to consider this morning, make a connection between baptism and unity in the body of Christ. And the first is 1 Corinthians 12. And that's the chapter where Paul repeatedly says there's only one body. There's many members, but there's one body. He says it over and over in different ways. But we read this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 13 and 14. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And when Paul mentions baptism here, he's ultimately talking here about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Just as in Acts 11, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were placed into the body of Christ. And so this is something that happens at conversion. You trust in Jesus, you're given the Holy Spirit, you are baptized into the body of Christ. But water baptism may also be in view because, again, just as in Acts 11, those who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit were also baptized in water. And his point is that since we've all been baptized by the same Spirit, we are part of the same body. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your status in society, there is one body. And just as we each have one physical body, but many members who have many parts of the body, uh, the same, there's a single unity in the body of Christ. The same body of Christ is comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, forever, from every segment of society. The other scripture you want to consider is Ephesians 4. And by the way, this is a shorter message. This is not a feature-length sermon like you normally get because we're going to hear testimonies and then have baptisms. But uh, the second scripture is in Ephesians 4. And significantly, when Paul urges the, the church in Ephesus to maintain their unity, he mentions baptism. There's a significant takeaway there. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Paul writes, "I Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, and so it was literally in prison, but he was also a, a slave of Christ, is the way he described himself, a bondservant. I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you or I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so notice, Paul doesn't tell them to create unity. No, the unity already exists. He, he challenges them to maintain or preserve the unity that God has already, has already made in the body of Christ. And notice how it continues in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he's making a very obvious point here, that just as there is one body, one body of Christ, there's one Holy Spirit, there's one hope of our calling, there's one Lord, speaking of Jesus, there's one faith. There's one Father. In the same way, there's only one baptism. Everybody's baptism signifies the same thing. Everybody's baptism is a declaration that since I belong to Christ, I'm going to walk with him. And since I belong to Christ, I am a member of the body of Christ. John Stott's comment on this passage is this. He says, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than to split the Godhead. And so we often fail to live out our unity visibly in the body of Christ. That's why Paul says here, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But the spiritual reality remains. There is one body because there is one spirit, one Lord, one God and father who is overall. There is one God, the triune God. Therefore, he has one body and there is one baptism that goes with it. And so today's baptisms reflect our unity in the body of Christ. Those who are being baptized here today, uh, Mason and Eliana, they are every bit as member of the body of Christ.